Letter 13. You must be a godsend. You won't know nothing about it. But the Almighty will be working his wondrous ways through you. I will admit, when I ripped your letter open, it was like archangels blowing trumpets so loud I couldn't read not one single word. I stood staring at it like a lemon. The thing is, it weren't no archangel delivering your wordy miracles to me. It was the one and only Frank Heaven's Furness. Since I nicked his wallet, he's made himself more scarce round here than a flushing loo. He's put on weight, too. I think they stuck him in an office, so now he can only get out if he squeezes sideways through the doors. What Franklin O. Furness is oh so curious about is, why is our miscreant Marley getting letters from solicitors all of a suddenness? I'll wager he stuck his pocked nose into my busies again so he can put his snooping into one of his reports. Cause they ain't got nothing better to do in offices round these parts. Did you know they read our letters? I been told this for a fact by a little birdie. Can we sue their bollocks off for that? And then I thinks, oh, fuck. Now Furness and his morons seen every one of my confessions I've been writing to you. But don't fret, my little birdie goes. They can't do nothing to you, Marley. He likes to chirp after I do him business favors. He says, rules is rules. You can confess all you like. They ain't allowed to read your legal letters. Which only goes to show what the Lord provideth, the Lord takes it all back again. So, Mr. O. Furness, now you're reading my legal letters, what it means is, all you got is fuck all. And by the way, you might like to think you're prying on me, but my little birdie says I'm prying on you. Furness held your letter on the palm of his hand. Soon as I snatched it up, I was staring at it, gormless. And that's when the furnace nose gets in the way. I tells him to mind his own fucking business. Do you know what he says then? He says, watch your fucking mouth, Godwin, or some such ordinary blaspheme, before he slopes off for his noontime work, I'll wager. Do you know what he says after that? Over his shoulder at me, he says, Yous don't need no fucking solicitors to get yous off. What yous need is a fucking godsend. I did hand gestures to him as he went. Cause Furness didn't know it, but a fucking godsend is what he just handed me on a plate. I couldn't stop gaping at the best of all miracles to happen yet. I skipped what you wrote. I had a good look at your signature. It's done like a bloke's face, only this bloke ain't taken his meds or something. I seen your signature before, when you wrote, back along, saying how you couldn't be my new solicitor and I should go someplace else in London. That's when the Almighty said in my head, Marley, 
He don't know it yet, but he's got that wrong. And finally, I gets the proper letter from you I always knew would come, only I couldn't even read it. I was so excited. You wrote so many fine words. Too many. I say too many words is too many of a good thing. Would you agree? Because anyways, I don't read half as good as I write. I gets bored. You know how Scarly was bang on with words. You know how sharp she was. The thing with her was, she could say anything she likes, quick and easy. Like a slap. It was the vodka, I reckon. Vodka gets to the meaningful bits the quickest. No messing about. You should try some. It would do your letter writing no end of good. You probably noticed lately how I've been dropping crossed out foul language into my side of the story. I do beg forgiveness. The reason is, what I seen in your letter, after all my struggling through it, is that you ain't given me permission to be rude yet. You forgot, I'll wager. You lemon. Cause that means it ain't formal. That means I got to keep jumping through loopholes. But I will forgive for the time being. Cause I know you will let me curse freely again. Soonish. Now that you are bound by law to listen to everything I say, and besides, basic profanities is the only way I ever learn to make what I say sound right. So be a good chap, put it in writing, then we can get on with some hooking matters. What I will also say is, you and I both know how technically there ain't been not one breach of the rule against blaspheming you will grant. I am utterly clever about this. Show me where I used a full naughty word once since I swore biblically I wouldn't. You can't, cause I ain't no lemon. When I stick iffy words in, it's cause I've been telling you what other people say that's filthy, and I always cross them out. And if iffy words slip out my own mouth, I crosses them out too. Anyways, what is it with lemons? They keep turning up in chatter whenever you want to talk about numpties. Why don't people just say numpties? Here's another thing. Scientists will tell you lemons don't know huck all. How the huck should they gather that? Have they been experimenting? Show me how scientists know lemons don't know huck. It can't be done. It's the same when it comes to miracles from heaven. Scientists reckon it's a proven fact. There ain't no such thing. Call themselves brainy. Hocking lemons. You say in your letter you need to contact the shower of hurt my last solicitors was. As you're my new solicitor now, and we got matters to get on with, I will tell you their names. By the way, I always thought your name was a bit singular. There can't be a more worse name for a solicitor than the one you got. Otto Loser? Really? What you lost? With a name like that, you must be foreign. Whatever your problem is, we shall overcome. I do know this much. The Almighty will not have commanded me to write to you so many times if he didn't rate you. 
when are you coming to visit? I got so much to say. Most of it is too much to say in words. I can only say it face to face, if that makes sense. It probably don't. Only, it ain't just the words we say, is it? It's what we feel when we say them. If you see me on a visit, you will know how much I hate remembering. I will pull my hair out right in front of you, so you can see for certain it weren't my fault what happened to Scarly. The trouble is, she is so everywhere in my brains. She may as well be me now. Did I tell you she taught me how to do poems? Don't worry, I will never let you peek at no poem I ever done. Not unless you ask very nicely. Cause you're my savior now, and I can tell you everything. So long as you come and visit. One thing I must own straight up is, lately I made a packet selling chemicals round these parts. I paid off all my owings too, and I even got savings now. I will deny this if Franklin O. Furness wants to know. He already knows, of course. Cause he's reading my legal letters as we speak, and needs to be sacked for that. Anyways, I will say I was only ever writing mindless chatter to my new solicitor, cause I got fed up in here. Ever since they banged me up for what I ain't done, moaning about it is all I know how to do best. I can hear myself moaning right now. I will say things like, Prison ain't what the good Lord wants for one who is utterly innocent. I will say, what the good Lord wants now is the gospel truth. But fucking hell, Mr. Loser, you left it long enough before you wrote back. It's been ages. It's like doing child labor, pouring my heart out to you in pen and ink. And the stamps don't come cheap. Only, now you are my godsend. I can jubilate. Or I will do. Soonish. When you come and visit, as it says you must in scripture. Now I will tell you about the hurt showers what hurt up my trial. But first, do you want to know something else? I never had no proper solicitors after I got charged. Even when the security company lads was searching me and shoving me in the dock in front of a judge, I didn't know what solicitors was meant for. The company I got called itself Brambles. Their letters come from Newmarket. Once I got locked up, they sent their granddad to visit. He told me his name was Len Overy. Only... I calls him lean over and pull the other one, cause he's having a huckering laugh. Lean over tells me how he used to be in the law, only now he works in a law firm. I goes, huck off, grandad. You're from the blokes in black, plain and simple. I still get tingles when they come near, even when they're wearing civvies and pretending to be solicitors. Lean over denied it all. He did a smirky grin, just like real granddads do. He said he really was a granddad. He just had his next grandson. The little chap was called Terry or Jerry or some such. Only, 
Just because he reckons he's a serial granddad, I'm supposed to believe everything he says? Pull the other one. Only, be a good chap and lean over first. Do you know what else? There I am, stuck inside. I've never been in no prison before. There ain't no one to moan to about how I got here. I ain't done nothing wrong. So I thinks to myself, I seen with my own eyes how Leanover can scribble notes and look clever. Why not give it a try? So off we go. He come along every week for his visits. All he'd done the whole time is nod and stare at my crick. I told him everything I told you in my letters so far. Ish. It weren't quite all of it. Lean over weren't bothered about how I used to be a dosser in London. Nor did he want to hear about the bolt from the blue old ropes give me when I couldn't find the right Albert Square. Nor did I say nothing about dying and coming back to life. Because all of that is between you, me, and my maker. Amen. What happened next, I hear you ask. Do you speak anything like your signature looks? It looks like the face of a bloke who can't find nothing funny. This is what happens to brainy blokes. They get miserable. It's cause they're so miserable that brainy blokes always need to know what happens next. So I will tell you. I'm about to be shoved back in the dock from my murder trial. There's less than a week to go. I am hurting myself when lean over brings his lady friend to visit. He goes, look lively, Marley. This is your barista. What does she look like? I will tell you that as well. She looks like she's on Botox. Lean over says, Marley Godwin, it's my pleasure to introduce Miss. I can't say nothing because I got plums up my rectum. Do me and her get on instantaneously? No, we huckin' don't. My Botox barista don't even speak proper. She only speaks queenish. Each time she says what for, lean over's got to lean over and say what she's saying. When I say something back, my lady barista stares at him with her droopy eyes. So lean over's got to lean over and say to her what I'm saying. Do you speak queenish? I don't suppose your sort need none of that gobbling gook. Your sort? Why should you? Plus, you're foreign. You can say what you like. Hang on a minute. I just slapped my head. Twice. I only just seen this instant how you being foreign is a sign from above. Bless you, O oh Lord, for this and that but especially for this, it's a miracle. Don't you get it? I bet you don't, cause you're a hucking lemon. Shall I spell it out? It's cause you're foreign that the good Lord has made you be my savior. He is full of hilarious pranks like that. I just slapped my head again, third time lucky. What a wonder to behold. Let me grab my Bible and give it a sloppy one, 
because you might be too clever by half, and you might not be as English as you should be, but at least we know this much. When you say too many over many words at me on your first visit, you won't be able to do not one bit of it in Queenish. So we won't need no lean over from brambles to tell us what the fuck is going on. <clears throat> it became necessary to familiarize myself with as many of Marley's letters as I could bear to read. Her former solicitors had been surprisingly forthcoming. Within days of writing to them, Brambles had supplied me with more than enough material for my purposes. If my knowledge of Marley's case had been built up from first impressions and office gossip, once I'd read what her solicitors sent me, I felt vindicated in the opinion that her case was hopeless. I decided to read her letters more carefully, though, in order to be able to advise her as comprehensively as I could that in my view she had no realistic prospect of appealing her conviction. I set about doing this one rainy Sunday morning in my flat. I wasn't on call. There was little else for me to do that day, so long ago now. I wiped down my kitchen table and placed the prosecution papers to one side. This became the stack for witness statements, the medical report, and the prosecution schedule of unused material. On the other side of the table, I placed Marley's defense statement, as well as all of the letters I'd received so far. After drinking two glasses of cold milk and absorbing more than a dozen of Marley's letters, I felt in a position to draft my considered response. I began by emphasizing the most obvious obstacle to appealing Marley's conviction. The fact that she had been found at the murder scene holding the murder weapon. I went on to discuss how the prosecuting advocate would have been able to argue credibly that Charlotte had been attacked some time after Mrs. Popham's phone call to the emergency services at 11.16 a.m. Within 30 minutes of Mrs. Popham's call, the police were on the scene. This made the time frame for the attack on Charlotte extremely narrow, leaving even less room for doubt. In addition to Mrs. Popham's evidence, I reflected on the statements of Jack and Agnes Godwin. By this point, early in June 2018, I hadn't yet tried to make contact with the Godwin family. That was all to come. I was only aware through Marley's communications of the kinds of tensions that had arisen between them. Jack's statement was especially damning. He identified himself as Charlotte and Marley's uncle. He said he was also Charlotte's former trustee and now the executor of her estate. He pointed out that he hadn't known of Marley's existence until December 2016. He said he had no knowledge of how or why the twins had been separated at birth. He confirmed that he and his wife had had no part to play in Marley's upbringing. Jack went on to assert 
that following her death, Charlotte's combined assets had been valued at just under two million pounds. Then he stated that Marley had been named as the main beneficiary in a codicil to Charlotte's will dated the 18th of January 2017. We both checked through them carefully. There was no reference to this codicil in any of Marley's letters. In her statement, Agnes Godwin added another dimension to the prosecution case, Charlotte's mental health. Just as you suspected, she confirmed that Charlotte had suffered from depressions since she was a child. She'd been under a doctor for it and was prescribed different medications over her lifetime. Agnes said that whenever the depressions became more intensive, Charlotte would become more vulnerable. In her relatively short statement, her opinion was that Charlotte's condition worsened shortly after Molly's appearance in her life. The combined impact of these statements was to suggest that sometime late in 2016, Molly discovered and targeted her depressive and vulnerable sister and had gone on to murder her, knowing that if she got away with it, she stood to inherit a sizable fortune. The case against Molly seemed perfect. Not only was the prosecution able to put her at the murder scene with the murder weapon in her hands, the jury will have heard that Marley had a strong financial motive for doing what she did. Because she'd gone on to be convicted of Charlotte's murder, I assumed that under the forfeiture rules, Marley would not be in a position to claim her inheritance. My understanding of probate has always been limited, but I took it that Charlotte's fortune will have devolved directly to her next of kin, either by virtue of her original will or perhaps under the intestate rules. In principle, this would be confirmed by both Ralph and Amelia Godwin. There were a number of other statements at the periphery of the Crown's case against Marley. These were made by various people who had come across the twins. As far as I could tell, each of these acquaintances were unconnected. All of them had come to know Marley after she'd moved in with Charlotte. They tended to paint relations between the twins as stormy. It was claimed that Marley and Charlotte bickered. Sometimes they would openly argue. They drank to excess. One witness reported in her statement that Charlotte had warned her to stay away from Marley because Marley could be unpredictable. The distinct impression, although this was never openly stated, was that Charlotte was afraid of Marley. I hope you can understand how I was thinking in the context of me trying to offload Marley's case once and for all. As I wrote what should have been my final words to her, I noticed the wind was buffeting a drainpipe on the side of my building. There was no more milk in the fridge. I was ready to conclude my letter to Marley, advising her that I could see no clear grounds for appealing her conviction. Marley had been requesting a legally aided service. I had a duty to reflect on this too. Not only were there no clear grounds of appeal that I could see, but her wish to instruct me to investigate the matter did not appear to meet the sufficient benefit required for public funding. I listened to the drain pipe as it clattered in the wind. By this time, 
I had divided Marley's letters into different piles on my kitchen table. I'd been deciphering them and reviewing the prosecution case for about three hours. I was about to draft a sentence explaining why I would be unable to offer Marley a publicly funded service when the drain pipe outside my kitchen window began to swing freely. It had become uncoupled from its lodgings. I decided to text my landlord, but with all the papers on my kitchen table, I couldn't find my mobile phone. I sat back, shaking my head, and was suddenly struck by a thought. You must get this sometimes. We all do. It was one of those moments when the brain erupts of its own accord. My thought concerned the spiral patterns. I began to wonder what the patterns were. I suddenly realized that the stone Marley had in her hands must have come apart. I stood and stretched my arms, then my legs. Through my window, I could see that the drain pipe was hanging loosely and swaying. I began to look around the kitchen surfaces from my mobile. It wasn't anywhere. I can become obsessive when I lose something. It's another one of those features of my personality that wasn't an issue before the attack on me. As I searched high and low for my phone, I realized I'd overlooked the fact that the stone must have split apart. I picked up the medical report. It stated that the weapon used had almost certainly been the stone. Strands of Charlotte's hair had been stuck to it. The report was silent on how the stone had come to be broken into two sections. I wondered, could this have been caused by a single fatal blow? The statements of the officers attending Charlotte's home described her as lying on a hardwood floor. While the stone may have split apart during the attack on Charlotte, it was possible to imagine that it had been dropped and maybe it had broken apart on its impact with the floor. Maybe it was because of the low-level distress I felt at not being able to find my phone that I was presented with a flurry of new questions about the stone. I couldn't keep the spiral patterns out of my head. Despite a pressing need to contact my landlord, I simply couldn't ignore this line of thought. I didn't even know where the stone had come from. That information would be made available to me in a few weeks' time when I was able to trace and speak with Charlotte's school friend, Hugo Timlin. I imagined the stone must have been whole when it was used as a weapon. Either it came apart in the attack and was dropped, or it was dropped after the attack and that's when it came apart. But why should something that is harder break when it comes into contact with something softer? This question made me wonder if the stone had always been in two sections, allowing it to fit together and come apart easily. Then it occurred to me to ask what might be the least obvious question. Why use the stone in the first place? I recalled Marley saying in one of her letters that she was squeamish when it came to knives. But why would she resort to a stone? It seemed highly unlikely that such an object, either in one or two parts, would be the weapon of choice for a premeditated murder. If anything, 
It was more the sort of thing a person might grab and use in the heat of the moment. And if Marley had really been motivated to eliminate Charlotte in order to inherit her wealth, would she not have left the house immediately, taking the murder weapon, or the two parts of it, with her? I couldn't imagine she would have intentionally allowed herself to be discovered by the police in such a compromising situation. Now I was in a quandary, logically and emotionally, unable to accept that on murdering Charlotte for her money, Molly would then have dropped to her knees in despair, taken up the separate sections of the stone she'd used to commit this crime, and stared at the spiral patterns within them until the police arrived to arrest her. It was with an underlying disquiet that this conjecture blossomed in my brain. I took a wet cloth and wiped down the surfaces around my sink and along the counters each side of it. I did this slowly and methodically. I washed my milk glass. I put it away. You have to understand, I've become more reliant on cleanliness and good order than I ever used to be. In the past, I tended to neglect my surroundings as much as I neglected myself and everyone else. I went to the window. For a time, I observed several trickles of water progressing down the panes. It calmed me. I listened to the buffeting wind. I had only just sensibly excluded the argument that Marley was motivated to murder her sister by the prospect of financial gain. I shook my head as if I was a different person now, looking at me. Of course, I was unnerved by this, because sometimes I think I really am a different person looking at me. But I had made the facts of the Crown's case fit a new and intriguing pattern, just as you would. I think the disquiet I felt was to do with the way in which sound reasoning can so easily be contorted and even turned on its head. Much as I didn't want to, I was forced to consider other explanations for Charlotte's death. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. But as well as everything else, these kinds of reversals, mental reversals, have come to me frequently since 2016. We might say they're part of a range of symptomatic changes I've been observing in myself since being discharged from hospital. Until we met, I hadn't spoken to anyone about it. I really do believe the attack on me resulted in significant changes to the way I function. I returned a cereal box I'd left on the counter to its usual place in an overhanging cupboard. I continued to wipe the work surfaces in my kitchen to the edge of the hob now. These actions felt necessary and satisfying. It was because I had become overly preoccupied, not only by Marley's strange case, but by the swinging drainpipe. It was still clattering outside my window. With increasing dread, I felt I had to text my landlord. Having turned my complete attention to this problem, I eventually discovered my phone tucked into a shoe belonging to one of several pairs neatly arranged to one side of my front door.